Amen, amen, and amen. Wow, that was just an amazing time of worship. Thank you, team. So good. If we had people in this room, I'd say let's give the team a round of applause. You can do that at home. Such a, oh, yeah. I just, that was, I don't know about you, that was exactly what I needed in that moment, just to sit in the presence of God, um, to sit, be still, just to allow those beautiful words and those truths to wash over us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, team. Uh, Mark, you can just keep tinkering for one second. I'm going to pray and we're going to get into this word tonight. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to stand here today and we want to declare that you are good. We want to stand here today and declare that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. You are Lord of all. You are the King of kings. You are the Prince of peace. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the first and the last. You are the beginning and the end. God, our lives are but a speck of dust on the glorious canvas that is your eternal creation. And yet you have chosen each one of us to be your child. You've chosen each one of us to enter into relationship with you. You see each and every one of us. Not one of us passes by your gaze without your heart skipping a beat. You adore your children. And so, Father, as your gaze is firmly fixed on us, your word tells us that your eyes go to and fro about the earth looking to whom you may show favour. Lord, your eyes are constantly on your children. And I pray, Father, that for us, this would be a moment in time where we stop looking at everything else. We stop looking at the nonsense that we look at and we would fix our eyes on you. They would be drawn to the heart of our Saviour. We would see you for who you are. And in that revelation of the love of God in Christ, our hearts would be so stirred, our lives would be so impacted by the power of your spirit that we would go into the world and make disciples of all nations. You've given us a purpose. You've created us for a purpose. May we not walk in distraction, but walk in the destiny that you've called us into. So we love you, Lord. We give you honour and praise as we come before your word now. We, we just agree together that um, your word is alive and active and it will penetrate the dividing soul and spirit. You do have a word for us in season tonight. And so I step out of the road and I pray, God, that you would speak, that you would speak powerfully. Lord, that no one would turn off their television or their computer or their device tonight and say, gee, Dave was good. <laughs> no, that's nonsense. May we leave and say, wow, how mighty is our God? How good is Jesus? May we leave all eyes fixed on you and all knees firmly planted on the floor at the foot of your throne. We love you, Lord. We give you honour and praise. 
And we're so excited about what it is that you're going to say to us tonight. So we're ready. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We're ready. We love you. We praise you. And together with one loud voice, all God's children said, Amen. Amen. I've got some ameners in the house tonight. And you know that makes me excited. Uh, So I hope that you're saying amen from home and you are keen to get around this word. Thank you, MG. Fantastic. Uh, So first, the introduction. Those of you who don't know me, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Hills, part of the team, this amazing team that's doing incredible things in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. It's a joy and an honour to be a part of it. We are in in a series of the book of 1 Peter. We are calling this series Living Hope. Um, It is a magnificent letter. It is a rich letter. It is a letter that is challenging, that is inspiring, that is confronting and is offensive. Uh, And that's the truth as we come before this word today and as we get through it, the next few chapters over the next few weeks, there's no doubt that this word is offensive to our pluralistic postmodern culture. Uh, But that's okay because... Jesus is a rock of offence and we're going to preach this gospel and we're going to preach it boldly uh, and that's what this is about. So we're going to come to our text today but just to fill you in on what we've learned about the letter so far before we come to chapter 2 verse 4 and 10 today we've studied the fact that Peter the apostle Peter uh, one of Jesus special three the one who uh, denied Christ was reinstated by Christ and then who preached that glorious sermon uh, when the church was birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This Peter's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to a church that is scattered right across the Near East um, and the Asian districts. And he's writing this letter to encourage people. He's writing this letter in the face of severe and significant persecution. And so he's writing it that the people would know, firstly, whose they are and how that shapes who they are, which therefore shapes how they should live. And so it's this powerful word about who you are uh, in Christ because of who he is and how that impacts you. So what we've learned is that he's teaching, he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians scattered around the place, but he's using these powerful Jewish motifs. Like he's talking about Jewish traditions and and Jewish ideas to a Gentile audience. It's this fascinating way of communicating. And what he's trying to communicate is that these people are a part of the family of God, that they have the same inheritance, that they have been engrafted into the promises to Abraham. And so as we've gone through the first chapter and a little bit, what we've seen is that the the church, the people of God in Christ, the church, you and me, that we are a holy people, that we are a people of the new exodus, that we are a people of the new covenant, that we are a people of the new Passover redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 4 to 10, and he brings this whole section around identity, this whole section around who we are, our nature in Christ, to the most glorious climactic close. So if you've got your Bibles, can you go there now? And I have to confess today that this word, I've sat with this all week and it, there's so much in it. And I'm praying that God brings clarity. It's so good. Uh, so Lord speak. Um, let's do this. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4 through 10 says this, the living stone and a chosen people. 
As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that caused people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Wow. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Friends, that's who you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is so good. Mark kicked this off a couple of weeks ago by asking the question, who are you? And, uh, and if you're so inclined, I want to invite you now just to announce the title of this sermon to the person next to you. If you've got someone in your room or you can just call it out. If you're a note taker, you can just write it down. I want you to declare that you are a standing stone. You are a standing stone. Back in 2010, I had the privilege uh, of going to South Africa with uh, a number of um, other staff members. I was a teacher at the time and a bunch of students. And we went to South Africa to the Moshawang Valley to this remote place, uh, very like poverty at its extreme. And we had the privilege of going there to teach uh, young people to teach high school age. Well, actually, they were older than that, but they were still in that high school time of life. And we spent three weeks teaching, and the idea was that we would help them so that they could get to the point at the end of the year where they could pass their exams, where they could exceed in um, and excel in education and break that poverty cycle. And it was just quite simply the most remarkable trip I think I've ever been on in my life. Um, a trip that was so intense but so fun. It's one of those ones where it's like the emotional roller coaster. You have these incredible moments of, of um, just intimacy and deep conversation and tears followed by raucous laughter and stupidity. And uh, one of those moments, I think you kind of need that and these sorts of intense trips. You need the bit of banter and a bit of laughter. And for us, uh, Part of that banter started amongst the staff. There was three male staff members. And it actually started one day when, um, when we found this large rock. And uh, we decided it would be a fun idea to, to uh, wrap that rock up in a towel and put it in the bag of our fearless leader, one of, the other, one of our mates who was running the trip, um, and just to see how far it could go because he carried this bag everywhere. We thought it'd be funny, chuck it in the bag. You never know, he might be carrying around a rock that weighs a couple of kilos for a while. We thought maybe we'd get a day out of it. Maybe we might even get a couple of hours and it could be a laugh. As it turns out, this rock stayed at the bottom of this man's bag for the best part of three weeks. And it was one of the funniest things because we didn't want to tell him. And every time he picked his bag, we'd be like, whoa, gee, this is heavy. <laughs> Knowing, having no idea that he had this massive rock in the bottom of his bag. 
And uh, he eventually found it towards the end of the trip. And obviously there was a lot of laughter about that. And as the trip rolled on from that point on, that rock just became a focal point and a feature of everything we did. It came with us everywhere we went. You never knew where that rock would turn up. One minute you'd hop into bed and there it would be down at your toes. The next minute you'd jump in the shower and there it was sitting on the shower floor waiting for you. At one point, one of the guys came back and all of his clothes were spread out on his bed so it looked like a human being and the rock was in the middle of the hood with glasses on uh, and he earned the name Brother Rory. Uh, There was just a lot of stupidity and a lot of fun that happened with that rock Um, and uh, the interesting thing about it was though in the midst of all of that this rock this just inanimate silly trivial non-living object became this incredible focal point for the whole trip I want to show you the rock right now we got a picture of that rock there Jess by the way Jess is doing her first ever pro presenter give her a round of applause she's doing a fantastic job so this is the rock The rock that we have, it's up there, fantastic. And the funny thing about it was, in the scheme of everything that we set out to do in those three weeks, the the rock itself was actually nothing more than dead weight. In the scheme of everything we had to do, to teach kids, to to minister to young people, to to teach, to listen, to, to give an embrace, to deliver aid. Like the rock had no lips to sing. The rock had no soul to engage. The rock had no arms to hug. The rock, it was just dead. It was just a dead weight. It was meaningless, trivial, silly nonsense that had no significant bearing on any meaningful thing that we did on that trip and yet somehow that rock has become the means through which the story of that trip is told. That stone has told the story of that trip and now it sits pride and place after making its way all over South Africa on an aeroplane, somehow through customs, and out the other end, now sealed and mounted, sitting on Adrian's desk as a memento of a trip that changed our lives. It's funny how a rock can tell the story. It's funny how a stone can bring a story to life. And the interesting thing about this is that this is actually not just true of three idiots in South Africa. This is actually true of most cultures across human history. You know, whether it's uh, an artist carving the image of Israel's greatest king into a big lump of marble, whether it's a stone pillar in the bowels of the Roman Colosseum, whether it's a simple rock with a name etched on a gravesite. Stones tell the stories of civilizations. And the interesting thing about this is that this is true of ancient people, it's true of us, and it's true of the Hebrew people. Do you know, in, in, we're going to have a bit of a history lesson. I love this time of every sermon. History time, it's fantastic. Ancient cultures, what they would do, if something significant happened, if a moment of... Um, whether it was two uh, different tribes came together and made a peace treaty or, or whether it was something as significant as what they deemed to be a supernatural event, what would happen was that these people, these communities would gather stones, they would heap stones, 
one on top of the other. And the purpose of those stones was that they would tell the story of what had happened for future generations. So that my children, who may not have been there for that peace treaty, they could walk up one day, years down the track, and say, hey, Dad, what's with those stones? What's with that standing stone sitting over there? And they would be able to tell the story of what had happened. And it was true for the ancient cultures, very true for the Hebrew people. And if we're going to understand this passage from Second Peter, we actually need to firstly understand a couple of things about the Hebrew people and the way that they went about uh, honoring God and, and honoring significant events. And we find this same thing happened, this same idea of erecting pillars of stone happened all throughout their history. And we'll do a bit of a Bible uh, search here. And Jess, I'm not going to put this on you because I didn't put it on you to show these uh, passages earlier. So I dare cause you to have to be stressed in this, but everyone else has a Bible and they can look it up. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 28, verse 18 to 21. And we see the story of Jacob, who is, uh, who'd been running from God and who had uh, been chosen by God. And God comes to him in a dream. He comes from a dream and he shows him this place of angels ascending and descending from heaven and on earth. And, and uh, Jacob wakes up and it says, Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd placed his head on, so the stone that he'd been sleeping on, and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though it used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking or I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you have, all, uh, and, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tent. There is a powerful moment there where Jacob erects this stone pillar in honor to God. And we carry on and we go to the book of Exodus in chapter 24, verse 2 and 4. And Moses has been up the mount and the Ten Commandments have been given and God has set his people free from Egypt. It's an incredible thing that has happened. And in verse Two, we're talking about the covenant being confirmed. We might as well just read from verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord said we would do. Then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. Get this. He got up early the next morning and what did he do? He built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There's something significant about the way that Israel would heap stones, that it would be this significant place, this significant site. It makes it sacred. And then we go to Joshua, and I'm not going to read that, but when they cross through the Jordan, Joshua instructs the people to grab stones and to heap those stones one onto another so that the people would remember 
that God brought them through the Jordan River into the promised land. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where there's this incredible victory that Israel has over the Philistines, and Samuel says, we're going to erect a pillar of stones. He calls it an Ebenezer. And some of you have sung that old song. You've sat in church and you sing that I'll raise my Ebenezer, and you've got no idea what it is. It's actually a pillar of stones. We sing about it today, and we've got no idea what we're talking about. It's this raising of a pillar of stones. And so this was significant in the Hebrew people's culture. This is a significant part of the way Israel did business to remember a significant event. But the purpose of the stones was not that they would point people to the stones, but they would point people to the presence that impacted them in that moment, that they would build the stones. And what happens in every other culture is that the heaped stones become a sacred site. People start to worship the site instead of worshiping the Savior. And so God says, no, that's not how it is to be with you. I am an imageless God. You cannot carve me in stone. You cannot carve me in wood. No, every time you see this, it is to point you to who I am. It is to point you to my presence. The monument was supposed to point them to the Messiah. And so Israel would heap stones so that the next generation would remember the Lord. And that was the purpose of what happened here. And then the second thing we need to understand is we need to recognize that these these people, because God was an imageless God, and unlike all the other nations who would worship the stones and, and worship the wood, and God said, no, that's not for me. I want you to worship me. I want you to abide with me. And so he's this God of presence. He's a God who wants to come to his people, and he establishes, because God's perfect and we're not, and everyone knows that light cannot dwell with darkness. If darkness tries to dwell with light, then darkness is consumed. You don't have to be Einstein to know that. God is holy. God is pure and so he needed to to make a way whereby he could dwell with his people and so he set up this system this law he set up this religious idea of tabernacle where his presence could come through a priesthood and through sacrifice and so we see that Israel have this sacrificial system where a lamb or an animal would be sacrificed and the price of their sin would be covered and And they would have that intimate relationship with God. And it happened at this place called the tabernacle, a tent of meeting, which was set up. And you need to understand that where the people had been making monuments so that their children would remember God, this in this moment is God actually setting up a standing stone that Israel would know who he is. This is God saying, here's a monument on the earth that you would know me. Don't worship the tabernacle. Don't worship the tent of meeting. Don't worship the practice, the ritual, the law. No, no, no. You worship me. This is a means to access my presence. And so this carries on for years and years. Who's enjoying history this morning, this evening, I should say. And then it gets to this point where where Solomon, the great king after David, gets to build a permanent tabernacle. It's something that had been promised that God was going to put a place where his presence would abide. And Solomon builds the most magnificent religious building that has ever been built. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Solomon. This extraordinary building. And here's the interesting thing. It is a temple of stone. 
See, Solomon builds this incredible, magnificent temple of stone, one stone on top of the other. And we need to understand that this temple is God's equivalent of the greatest standing stone ever built, that the people would come to the temple, that they would come on their festivals, that they would come to worship God, but it would never be about the temple. The temple, this incredible standing stone, this incredible heap of rocks would actually point to the true God whom who they worshipped and who he longed to abide with, who he longed to have relationship with, that they would know the presence of God. And so God establishes this temple and it is glorious. And we're going to go to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And Jess does have this, so you can read it on the screen. When Solomon builds the temple and they, they, uh, they start, that's like they're, I guess, induction of the temple, the opening ceremony of the temple. When Solomon, it says this in verse, chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled it. They couldn't go in because the glory was so Thick and strong and overpowering. Oh, I would love to have that in our church. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good and His love endures forever. But with that comes a catch. Because God wants them to know that it's not about the standing stone. It's not about the temple, it's about him. And so what he says to them, this seemingly unassailable, incredible, glorious building, and he says at the end of the day, all this is, is a pile of stones. And if you lose sight of me, if you, if you lose sight of who I am and what this is all about, and if you trust in the temple instead of trusting in me, then all of this will come to nothing. And I'll show you that this is just religion. This is just dead, lifeless stones. It's just rocks. It's just one pile of rubble. And he says in that same chapter in verse 19 and 22, If you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. And all who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land, to this temple? People will answer because they've forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And here's the thing. History shows that that is exactly what the people did and it is exactly what God did. The temple was destroyed and then rebuilt. And then just six or seven years after Peter pens these words that we just read, it's destroyed again. Something that Jesus prophesied. And the reason is, is because the temple was not supposed to be the thing that they worshipped. The temple was a foreshadowing. It was a taste of what God had ordained to come. The temple was set up as a standing stone of God to point them to his purpose for their future. 
It was supposed to represent the fact that the presence of God was going to be made manifest to his people through sacrifice, accessible after sacrifice by a royal priesthood. It's what Jesus is alluding to when he's teaching. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. He says, a time is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, which is the temple. But a time is coming when the true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. A new temple was coming, friends. And this is what God was saying is that the temple, the standing stone is just a foretaste. Don't Get stuck on that, but let that do what it was always supposed to do. The standing stone is always supposed to point you towards the Savior, towards the one who is sovereign. Let the monument point you to the Messiah. And this is what the prophets understood to be true. They knew it. The prophets were saying, hey, this is just a foretaste. There is is a Messiah coming who is going to make God's presence accessible to all of us all of the time in every moment by His Spirit. And it's going to be something that is glorious and magnificent. And it's a message that Peter is ramming home with great conviction and authority in this letter. And so he uses this rich Judeo-Christian history, he uses this rich imagery, this rich motif to actually make a powerful point about throwing it to mentioned three distinct things that he, that he brings out. And the first is centered around who Jesus is. And the second centers around who we are. And the third centers around what is our purpose. So let's go back to that passage with that as our foundation, with that bringing some context to this concept of stones. Let's go back and we're going to read from verse 4. Who is Jesus as you come to him? That's Jesus, the living stone. Oh, that's so good. Notice the adjective. It says, that's a grammar word. It says living. What are stones by nature? Dead. They're nothing. They're inanimate, stupid, silly thing that you can't have anything more dead than a stone. And it says, you come to him, the living stone. What did we just say the pile of stones were? They were the message of God. This pile of stones, this temple was the message, was God saying, hey, let this point you to me. It's, it's designed to make you aware of who he is and what he's doing and what he's done and what he's going to continue to do in the future. That was the purpose of the stone. It's the message. And so Paul, Peter is saying, as you come to him, the living, the living, he is alive. He is not dead. The living message, the living word, the living stone of God. This is so good. And he's saying, he He is alive. He is not just an ornamental religious thing that happens to be on a stained glass window. No, he is alive, friends. He is alive. And because he is alive, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God because he defeated death. No, watch this, stone could keep him in a grave. Oh, it's not an accident that the stone was rolled away. It's not an accident that the stone was the thing that was pushed out of the way of the grave because the stone represents just a heap of rubble. It represents that which is lifeless. And Jesus, who was dead, crucified on a cross, 
The life of God so filled him that no stone can keep him down. And he gets up and he boots, you know, that stone gets rolled away. And then Jesus has the foresight to go, actually, I'm going to fold my linen that was around me. I'm just going to place it nicely on that stone table so you would know that I am alive, that death could not hold me down, and that I am the one who God prophesied or said about through his prophets that I have come that you might have life. I have come to fulfill the prophecy to actually make a way. I have come to fulfill the whole meaning and purpose of the temple that you would have access to my presence, the presence of God. He's the living stone. This is so good. But the second thing about this living stone is that when we, for the, for the readers of this time, they would understand the concept of the building. The temple sat what on massive, enormous stones. Now, I am not a builder, but I do know that when you build a house, you lay a foundation. And nowadays, we lay this concrete foundation. But back then, they laid this foundation on massive, massive stones. We're talking 60 ton. I don't know how they moved it. Sometimes we think we're smarter than the generations that went before us. I'm not sure that we are. And so they managed to get these stones that were precious because of their nature, that they were refined, they were chiseled, they were shaped just perfectly. And they were put in place. And the greatest of all those stones was the cornerstone because the cornerstone sat there and it had to be right and it had to be true. And all the other stones that formed the walls and formed everything else in that building sat and took its guide from the cornerstone. And if the cornerstone was just slightly out, it meant the walls would be out. And that means the whole house would come tumbling down. So the cornerstone had to be perfect. It had to be true. It had to be trustworthy and it had to be strong. And Peter here, he says, not only is he the living stone, but as it goes on, it says that he is the cornerstone, the chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And he's writing to a church that is being shamed left, right and center. That's being persecuted. That's being mocked. And I wonder if you've ever suffered shame for Jesus in our culture, if people have looked at you and thought you're an idiot for having faith. And he says, but the one who trusts in him, it's like building your house on the tried and true cornerstone. You will not be put to shame because of who Jesus is, because he is alive and he is the cornerstone. He is a sure foundation. Jesus fits that bill in a powerful, powerful way. And then there's a third thing that we see about Jesus, which is really interesting. Because in verse 7, it says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Friends, first and foremost, the stone was rejected. You know, Jesus was rejected. It fits the bill. 
Every prophecy spoken about this cornerstone is that he would be rejected. Jesus was rejected. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was hung on a cross. And Peter wants us to see this. He wants to say to these people, hey, 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 Jesus is the one the prophets were talking about. He was rejected by men, but he's been chosen by God. And he's precious and he's glorious and he's beautiful and he's trustworthy. So put your hope in him. And then he says this, but if you reject him, he is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them and fall. In our culture, to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes but to the Father but by him is offensive. But it is true. God has made a way. Jesus is that way. That is what the whole temple was about to show us that we couldn't access God in and of our own righteousness because we will always fall short. Sacrifices will never do. There needed to be a once-for-all sacrifice by the pure, spotless, perfect, risen King. And He gave it for us. And He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we need to boldly declare that in this generation. Boldly declare it in this generation. And it's offensive, but it's true. So let's stand on it. That's who Jesus is. He is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the stone the builders rejected. And he is a rock of offense. But we can trust him. Second thing I want to talk about is who does this say we are? Verse 4 and 5. Let's read it again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also... Like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Oh, that's so good. Like living stones. He's saying you were dead, but in Christ, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, he stands you up. You were dead and now you are alive. You are like the living stone. You have been made like Christ. You are in Christ's image. You have been engrafted into his life. You are taking on his life. And he has taken your death on the cross. You like living stones. You have been set free, friends, from the curse and sin and death. Where, O death, is your victory? It is gone. It has been buried by the blood of Jesus. You are a living stone. That is incredible. You are a walking witness to the wonders of God. That is who you are, a living stone. And you've done, become that living stone so that, so that you are being built into a spiritual house. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Friends, God is making us a spiritual house. This is one of the problems with our culture today. And I had this image of Lego and I'm spewing because I forgot to bring my Lego. I was going to have a Lego analogy here, but I forgot it. So I apologize. But this, we've got this individualistic society. It's like we, we get the block of Lego. We go, oh, look at me. I'm a, I'm a living stone. And that's all I need. I'm off doing my own thing. You know, like my kids who just have one little, they just want to play by themselves sometimes. Like, what are you going to do with that? You can't make anything magnificent with that. No, you are supposed, that block is created to be connected to other blocks. And as it becomes connected to other blocks, you can build this glorious spiritual house. We become, we, he's talking plural here when he writes this. It's not you individually. He's talking 
You, plural, you, we, the people of God, we become a spiritual house connected together. The church is supposed to be connected. And we've got so many people saying, oh, I've got my faith and I I don't need to go to church maybe once a month. Gee, that's a lot. I can't believe I even go that much. We don't want to connect. And because we don't want to connect, we're actually missing out on an anointing. Because go back to that Second Chronicles passage, what happened when the temple was consecrated? It says that the fire of God fell and the glory filled the house. Now, 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 go to Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts? There is the people, the church, the new temple. They're sitting in a room together unified as the church, the new house of spiritual house of God, what happens? The fire of God comes and it fills the new temple. And as it fills the new temple, the glory of God comes and it fills the temple, the people, the house of God, the church. And then the church goes out with that fire and with that glory and changes the world. And the problem we have today is that we've got so many Christians who aren't connected to the spiritual house, who are claiming Christ but denying the power of God, walking without an anointing because you're disconnected from the spiritual house. But if we get connected to the spiritual house, unified together, recognizing it doesn't matter if I'm at the front door, it doesn't matter if I'm the stone right at the top that everyone sees with Michelangelo's finger of God pointing it doesn't matter if you're a stone in the back office I just want to be a stone in the house of God that's all I want to be what about you because when I'm a stone in the house of God I get filled with the fire of God I get filled with the anointing of God and then my life becomes a living sacrifice to him it becomes something that shines his glory and shines his radiance and this is what we're supposed to be connect to the spiritual house You are the church, but the church is an assembly. You're not supposed to be doing faith alone because I promise you it is so hard. But when you're connected to the spiritual house, you become that glorious building of God. And we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him through Jesus Christ. Like I said, I wish I had three hours tonight to preach this. It's an incredible picture. You are a stone in the wall of the wonders of what God is doing in the world. Do you understand that? You are a stone in the wall of the wonders of what God is doing in the world. Don't be a little block by yourself that people trip over and hurt their foot on. Connect to the spiritual house. I just had a picture of my, sorry, it's a tangent. You know, Peter understood this. Peter's writings, he understood this because Peter's the one that Jesus came to and he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And he's not talking about Peter because Peter had just made a confession. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is saying, that is the rock. I am the rock. That's what he's saying to Peter. The fact that I am the son of God. I am the new and living stone. I am the stone that the spiritual house of God is being built. So you, my beloved Peter, and everyone who would follow in your footsteps, you build on me, connect, build on me, and I will make you a glorious house. And guess what? That house, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Stay connected. Stay connected. We become the royal priesthood. Access to God is granted not at a one once a year festival that one person can enter. No, 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 no. It's a picture. It's a standing stone of what God was doing, that the great high priest, Jesus Christ, would be making a way that the presence of God would be made manifest to all of humanity. All of us become priests. All of us become not just priests, but royal priests because we are seated at the right hand of Christ. We become a royal priesthood who have access to the presence of God through the living sacrifice that is Jesus Christ. We have access. You are a priest. Therefore, stop relying on Sundays only for teaching. Stop relying on your YouTube to get alone with God. No, get in the presence of God because God is desperate to meet with you. It's what the temple was about. That is the standing stone. That's what Christ is showing us. God is desperate for intimacy with you and he's given you the access so will you do it will you come to him as you come to him Hebrews 4 let us approach the throne of grace boldly to receive mercy in our time of need go boldly Go boldly. It doesn't matter what your week has looked like. It doesn't matter if you're feeling faithful or not. All that matters is that you come. All that matters is that you get on your knees before a holy God. Would you carve out five minutes of your day because he's worthy of five minutes? Would that five minutes become 10? Would we put first Jesus because he is the one who is the rock on which we are built? Or will we spend our days chasing after everything else, every other distraction, all the other rubbish of the world? None of it can save us all of it are just stones they're stones dead idols tablets none of it saves only Jesus saves he is the living stone and life is what we need come to him because he has come for you For a purpose. And Band, you can come up and I'm going to close. For a purpose. Verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's who you are in Christ. God's special possession. Wow. Why? That. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Friends, you have been stood up that you might stand out. God has stood you up that you might stand out. You become God's standing stone in the world. You become the pile of stones, the work of God in the world, that the world would walk up and say, what is it about this pile of stones? That's what we are. We're standing stones. And God has made us that way in Christ. And so the question is, are you lying down or are you standing up? Are you living in the fullness of the purpose that God has created you for? Are you standing out? Are you being different? Do you look different? Do some, does, is someone drawn to you? Yes. 
I love what Tim Keller says. He says the world should equally hate us and love us because of our stance, because the things that we preach and proclaim by our lives are offensive. But in that offensiveness, the fact that we have purpose and we have drive, and we've got a heart for the broken and we go after the lost and we, we have the heart of Christ, the world's like, I don't know what to do with them because I'm drawn to them, but they offend me. That's what we're called to be, a standing stone. People come from all over the world to go and look at Stonehenge. They are not living stones. They're dead stones. The church is a living stone. We should be an ornament. We should be a monument unto the Lord that the world cannot deny, that the world has to go to and say, wow, that is who we are. We've been stood up to stand out. That is our purpose. And so I feel like the Lord laid on my heart today a word for, for this church is that Are we standing out? And I cannot get over, if you are following in the morning as well, I cannot get over the similarity and the connection between each of our Jeremiah messages and each of these first Peter messages. It is amazing what God does. It is the same word, morning and night, morning and night through a different context. Stand out because He has stood you up. And so here's what I want to do tonight as we, we worship. And Geordie, we might even, we got nowhere else to be, so we might as well do a bit more worship, Geordie, if that's all right. Can we do that? Can we just have a moment? I just feel like we need to respond. And I know that we're not in a room and together, but that doesn't mean you can't respond. God's Spirit is moving. God's Spirit is speaking to hearts and lives right now. All right, there's a connect link if you want to go to that. Jess, if you want to put that up and you need prayer right now, we want to invite you to click on that and people are going to, Uh, follow you up but I just want to invite you right now to respond I want to invite you to get on your knees before a holy God to move to say God this is you're ministering to me right here and I believe in this moment God's going to tangibly touch you with his spirit I believe in this moment that God wants to anoint you with fire from heaven I believe that God wants to empower you that you might go into the world and be who he has called you to be so I'm going to pray for that refining fire I'm going to pray for the anointing to come. I want to pray for the glory of God to fall on you wherever you are at. Whether you're watching this live, whether you're watching this five years from now, I don't know where you're going to watch this, but I'm going to pray in this moment the Spirit of God moves and speaks and ministers to you powerfully. And from this moment forth, forevermore, your world is changed. No more compromise. No more having a seed of faith, but denying the power of God. No, 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 no. This is raw to me right now. And I'm going to preach this. I'm going to be a bit vulnerable with you, but I realised the other day that I'd been sitting with God. I'd been praying, saying, God, open doors. God, use me, use me. Like set, you know, set me apart for something. I've been praying this and God just confronted me. And he said, David, what you're praying for is a prideful thing. You're praying for yourself. You want a platform. That's what you're effectively praying. What you need to be praying is, God, just give me more of you, whatever that is. And God's broken me in that because I need to just, let's change my heart. I just, I don't care what stone I am. I just want to be a stone in the house of God. And I want more of Him and I want the fire of God to be relevant and real in my life. And I want the anointing and the glory of God to captivate my life and to make me a standing stone that the world cannot deny. And my prayer is that's true for all of us in this place. All of us, that we would be who we have been made. 
So let's pray. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and move. Come and move. Come and move. Father, I pray that you right now in this place, you're just breaking down chains. Pride is falling to the ground everywhere. I see chains falling down. I see a young blonde lady on her knees, on a rug in her living room floor, and I see chains falling from your shoulders. And I feel like God is saying, whom the sun sets free, they are free indeed. Arise and be who I've called you to be, sister. Come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, just come and minister to our hearts. Father, I pray for Hills Baptist. I pray for Hills Baptist, Verdun, Hills Baptist, Allgate, Hills Baptist, Allgate, 6 p.m. I pray that you would break us. Get us out of our religious cliches. Get us out of our religious traditions. God, we don't want to trust in the temple anymore. We want to trust in the living stone. God, I pray that we would be open and vulnerable to the work that you want to do in our lives, that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, would you set our hearts ablaze? Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done, what you're going to do. I just see this picture of the cool winds of the Spirit blowing through the curtains of an open window in a house just gently just touching people's lives, filling them with his breath. I feel like you're saying you need to first open the windows. The Spirit's moving, the Spirit's blowing and breathing, but we've closed ourselves off to him. For whatever reason, maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's an abuse of who the Spirit is. Guys, he is good. He is a part of the triune Godhead. He is God. He's not scary. He loves you. And he wants to grab you. And he wants to show you who Jesus is. And he wants to hold aloft Christ. that you would have power to grasp how high and wide, how deep, how long is the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Come Holy Spirit, just breathe on us, Lord. Breathe on us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.